What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone and welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down, the feminist sports podcast that, you know, we hope you both want and need these days. As the pandemic rolls on, we are here for you and here for each other and taking things day by day. My name is Lindsay Gibbs. I am the founder of the Power Plays newsletter about sexism in sports. And joining me today are three of my fabulous co-hosts, Dr. Brenda Elsie, the Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University, Dr. Amir Rose Davis, the Assistant Professor of History and African American Studies at Penn State University, and soon to be Dr. Jessica Luther, <laughs> the freelance sports reporter and author in Austin, Texas. Her book, Loving Sports When They Don't Love You Back. Is that the full, is that the correct title, Jess? You got it. Okay. <laughs> that book is out this fall. So we're going to be talking a lot more about that coming up. Always want to thank our patrons for making this show possible. Um, Patreon.com slash burn it all down. It's where you can go and for as little as, often for way less than a cup of coffee these days, you can support our show and help make this independent ad-free podcast possible. Today, we're going to be diving into a big conversation about labor rights in sports as we attempt to restart sports in the middle of a pandemic. We're going to be looking at the college level, the pro level, and of course, looking at the systemic racism that still festers within and we've got an interview from Shireen, who talked with Dr. Janice Forsyth, the Cree academic and sports sociologist on sports and indigeneity, the history of colonialism in sport, and her new book, Reclaiming Tom Longboat, Indigenous Self-Determination in Canadian Sport. Cannot wait to listen to that. First off, so as I mentioned, we're talking about sports in porn, sports in the pandemic, and this week... We had both the NBA and the WNBA go to their, uh, I'd say, popped bubbles in Florida. Jolien B departed for his play in the Philadelphia Center in a full hazmat suit. <laughs> <laughs> Just like, hey, I mean, I didn't know they made ha hazmat suits for a seven foot, however tall he is. Like, it was amazing. And I, I was with him. Like, that's how I would want to be traveling on a plane or anywhere these days. But it got me a lot of think about, thinking about packing for uh, these, you know, kind of lockdown experiences. You know, they're not really supposed to go off site. They're supposed to stay in their hotel. And talked with Rashonda Gray, who is with uh, a WNBA player with the Los Angeles Sparks. And she said that she brought her bedazzler to the bubble at the IMG Academy in Bradenton. And it got me thinking, what is the one thing that you would bring if you were, you know, a WNBA player headed to IMG, you know, besides like the basics, your clothes and makeup and, you know, accessories, 
what would what would you have to have, Jess? Yeah, well, first, I just want to give Embiid like major props for pl- obviously planning ahead. However, he got that suit. Yes. But also, <laughs> my answer is super easy. I would take my Kindle. It's like, my that's how I fall asleep every night reading romance novels on my Kindle. And so it is one of my most prized possessions in the entire world. And I don't know what I would do without it. Like everyone in my family understands that like I need to know where it is at all times. So definitely that. That's awesome. Amira? Yeah, I don't know if you count phones as essential, but my phone, because I can, I listen to Audible on it, I can read on it, I can do Peloton classes on it, it connects me to other people, which would be by far the most essential thing about being in a wobble or a bubble of any sort. And so I barely have it out of my hands. I'm um, the worst kind of millennial in that way. And I'll be on brand and say my phone. I totally get you there. I... I was honestly thinking, I was like, I wish I had something fun, like a bedazzler that I could bring, but all my hobbies are on my stupid damn phone. But I did think I would be the crazy candle lady, I think. Like, I would have to have some candles to, like, soothe me after, you know, a long, stressful day. So I would bring a big candle supply. What about you, Bren? Well, I assumed I could have books and phones as yeah. essential, but Same, non yeah. non essential things. Two things: I would I would uh, keep the Forza Football app. So if somebody like if we were minimizing that and somehow, and that's ridiculous because it just lets me see um, football games that no one's attending now all over the world, <laughs> and it's super fun <laughs> for no other reason than it being silly. And the other thing is, even before that, I would take my watch. And like I don't need my watch. Your Apple Watch? Because I have a phone. Or like a regular no, watch. I have an I have an analog. What do you do watch. with a regular watch? <laughs> I love it. I look at it and I love it and it makes me feel good and it helps me not be that annoying millennial that can't get off my phone because I pretend I'm looking at the time. <laughs> I don't get it. it I just like it for anything. <laughs> it doesn't do anything. No, it doesn't. It just tells the time and makes me feel like reassured. And somehow I have this belief that it's like those. Uh, remember when you get dizzy or travel sick, and they have those pressure points on your yeah. wrist. I have this like crazy theory that somehow that's the permanent thing my watch does. Okay. All right. <laughs> so. I think it's safe to say we'd be pretty boring packers. No bedazzling a bunk amongst us. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we've been talking for a couple of months now, maybe three months time is a question mark, but about the potential return of sports amidst this coronavirus pandemic. But today, hypotheticals have become realities. On the collegiate side, universities are making defining decisions about when and if sports are returning this year in the middle of being used as political pawns by the Trump administration. In the pros, athletes have already entered their not-at-all-enclosed bubbles to put their health and safety on the line for a paycheck um, to be able to support themselves. And today, we're going to dive into whether there is really any way for sports to return in a pandemic that actually respects the labor rights of athletes. It's something we're going to be wrestling with. I want to start on the collegiate level. And I know there's a lot of administrative stuff going on, both within universities and the federal government level. So Brenda, can you get us called up there? Well, this week, there was uh, an order issued by Immigration and Customs Enforcement, better known as ICE, that will affect at least well, over a million international students across the United States. And essentially, it says 
that international students on F-1 visas have to leave the U.S. if their colleges and universities are not meeting face-to-face. So if they're being conducted solely online, then their F-1 visas will not be valid and they'll have to leave the country. Many of these are athletes, by the way. But the majority of F-1 visa holders are from India and China. And there's a direct sort of messaging that's going on here. And I think there's things that link up with sports. So, I mean, I'm curious to think what or listen to what other people have to say. But on the one hand, it's a blatant attempt of the Trump administration to force us back, right? It's, it's asking educators who care very much about our students, very much about our students to say, well, you know, if you do this, you're actually going to be hurting them in other ways. And there, there are F1 visa holders that have not actually been in their particular country of quote unquote origin since they were young children and have no idea how they're going to be there. Many of their family members are not there. And so it's, it's, it's a horrible thing to put students in that position. But essentially what they're doing is putting university faculty and administration in that position. And so it's just, I just want to start by saying this is horrible. It's unconscionable. And it's also purposefully telling colleges, this is another way that we're going to put the screws into you to go back, even if you think it's unsafe for your students, even if you think it's unsafe um, for yourselves. Yeah, not ideal for sure. Jess, what is, we've had some schools make solid decisions here. Um, What did the Ivy League decide? Yeah, we've seen multiple conferences, big ones like Pac-12 and Big Ten move to just conference play for football. Football's the like guiding, (laughs) the guiding sport for everybody. And the Ivy League was the first D1 league to put all sports on hold until at least January 2021, including football, which, you know, the sacred sport. Ivy League's not a huge D1 football. Like, the D1 part of it doesn't really come into play for football. But still, they did say in their statement, quote, with the information available to us today regarding the continued spread of the virus, we simply do not believe we can create and maintain an environment for intercollegiate athletic competition that meets our requirements for safety and acceptable levels of risk. And going off what Brenda just said, yes. Exactly. If I was in charge, which no one will ever put me in charge, but if I was in charge, this is how all of college sports would be handled in the fall. And I just want to say, if they move football to the spring, that's a whole other discussion about the wear and tear on these young men's bodies for whether or not they can play in spring and fall. So like, there's a lot going on here. But I do think at this point, no sports in the fall makes a lot of sense and is really the safest option. Yeah, it's it's hard to agree with that. As of course, I'm thinking about sports like basketball, which is inside, and we'll discuss that a little bit more when we get to the pro side. But it's tough to see because there are so many student athletes who, well, I hate using that term. That's the NCAA's term. But there's so many athletes in college who this is such an important part of who they are and of their identities and of their you know life goals. And it's hard to see all of this interrupted in this way. But also, it's just it's safety. Amira, I know you have thoughts. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's happening is as campuses themselves are moving to phase reopening, is they're slowly bringing back fall sport athletes. And obviously, we've been reporting on the voluntary, quote unquote, voluntary workouts um, that's been happening around the country in terms of football. Those have been highly publicized because, unfortunately, COVID breakouts have been happening. And some of those workouts have now since been shut down. But also, like here, our women's soccer and women's volleyball team came back. And 
And I had a Zoom meeting with some of the athletes and like they're in quarantine, right? They have restrictions on traveling, restrictions on when they can lift. And what's illogical about this is that happens through the summer and then just poof in August when all the students come back, it's like, never mind, you're good now, which just shows you that a lot of these plans for the fall, whether it's athletics or just general college operations, are just grasping at straws. And with good reason, I think it's important to understand the economic, like this is a really, 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 really Nobody knows how to handle this. And every school, whether they're a private school with an endowment that they refuse to touch or a state school with funds or if they're like me in a college town where the entire economy runs off of this school, it's easy to see why they're grasping desperately at straws to try to remain open. So the Big Ten moving to conference only, for instance, that's just a stepping stone. It's one of many stepping stones that's going to happen before they inevitably realize that there's no way they can do this. And the hope is that they remember that before August when everybody comes pouring back in instead of waiting till October and realizing they have to shut down because we've had a spike. And so that's essentially where I view us being. And my hope is that, you know, the powers that be make these hard calls beforehand. And I think just to to end, I, I burned this before when I was talking about Mike Gundy, but particularly when people are looking at football and thinking about like the detriment that it's going to have on t- college towns like this, whose businesses run not only on the students, but particularly on the football programs that's coming in or other fall sports programs. That's what happens when you build an entire system on the exploitation of predominantly black and brown athletes, but all college athletes to fund your institution and the economy of your town. Like this is what happens when you build the house of cards on that back. And so it's a frustrating in general. And and I I just am kind of like at a loss for words about what to do. Amira, I have a question for you quickly before we move on. How do the athletes that you're talking to feel about this? Because one of the things, you know, as I'm talking with athletes on the elite levels of women's basketball is that they're hoping beyond hope, some of these top athletes, that there is a way to play this fall, right? They don't want to see anything changed. And uh, so I'm just kind of curious how the athletes that you've been talking to are feeling. Yeah, I mean, it's a feeling of, hell yeah, we want to play, but also it's not safe. And just being extremely frustrated about that, I liken it to the same way that my 13-year-old desperately wants to go to school and have drama club, but knows that she can't. And that's really upsetting. And when I talk to them this week, especially the athletes who are rising seniors, where they're looking at a mountain of uncertainty because this was, you know, their last year and then they were transitioning, but what are they transitioning to? I think that's one of the hardest parts um, is the unknown about, will they have an extra year eligibility if it gets canceled? Does that create a bottleneck for the team? Does that mean that their professional career is on hold? Does that mean that they don't go into the draft in, in January? Or what does it look like to think about playing overseas? When is that safe? And so those are the kind of things that they're ruminating on. And nobody really has the answers, which makes it just kind of uncertain and frustrating. And so yes, there's deep desire to play, but there's also desire to be healthy. And I think those are at conflict. Yeah, it's a it's an infuriating situation. Um, Bren, how are faculty dealing with all of this? <laughs> Fearing for their lives, <laughs> <Terribly>. jobs. <laughs> no, I mean this is really laid bare. Just to to speak to what Amira was saying, it's really laid bare 
the ways in which we should really be taking this moment to think about restructuring education, period. You know, whether you're at a state school that has had funding cuts, 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 and you're relying on a football program for your town and your school, that is unnecessary. Penn State has a wealth of amazing faculty, including Amir. But I mean, in research, there's no reason that the state shouldn't see that system as being something worth investing in versus relying upon, you know, athletics that very few students may participate in. And we should really be thinking about that because when they're throwing students and faculty and then you're getting pressure from the federal government and it's to what maintain the status quo of a system that is incredibly exploitative and that's also economically ridiculous and pitting faculty against you know an athletics program which has been done for years needs to be just completely restructured i just i think it's it's unfortunate that there's all these pressures to maintain a status quo of the system that this pandemic has laid bare as being not only exploitative and racist, but also counter to the very mission of a university. And Jess, how is the NCAA handling all of this? You know, they love control and protocol, so I'm sure they're all over COVID, right? Yeah, of course not. And this is what sucks. Like, it's as Brenda and Amira just laid out really well, like things have to change in just the system in general. And then we have this overarching organization that in theory, in theory, is supposed to help guide all of this. And basically, the NCAA this week put out the most weak statement they could, uh, something about how they are supporting all of their members and all of the hard decisions they're making. Like that was literally it. And the thing that struck me about that is that this is the same kind of statement that the NCAA puts out whenever there's uh, a lot of public outcry about issues around gendered violence in collegiate athletics. And it's the same sort of we are letting every institution handle it on their own. Good luck to you all. And it just is another moment where we see how the system is really built not to do anything but make money for these schools and especially for the NCAA. Uh, they don't care, right? It just is another moment where we see that they just don't have it in them to care at all about what's actually happening to these student athletes. That sounds up the NCAA. I want to talk a little bit. I've been really enmeshed these pa- this past week and before that really about what's going on in the National Women's Soccer League and in the WNBA. And I think it's a little bit different than what's going on the collegiate level because there are livelihoods at stake. And it's, I don't know, I I have a lot of complicated feelings. So I wanted to give a brief overview and then kind of ask my co-host if they can help me figure out how I feel. Um, So first of all, I want to say that NWSL is about like two and a half weeks into its challenge cup in Utah. We know we've talked about how the Orlando pride didn't go to the tournament. They had positive COVID tests beforehand and realized that there was no way they could quarantine in time to, you know, not bring the coronavirus into the Utah campus where this is being held. So they just didn't come. So that was a team out of the way. But we're two and a half weeks in, and as everyone I talked with on the NWSL level told me, do not jinx us when you tell this story, but um, there hasn't been a positive COVID test yet. They have 
extreme protocols in place for the players. Like, so basically in the dorms, like each, the teams completely stick together. There's no intermingling between teams at all. Like to the point where their schedules are coordinated so that they won't pass each other in the halls, on the way to the practice field, in the cafeteria. It's all really, really structured. The testing protocols, they found a lab in Utah that is, they've made sure going above and beyond to ensure, of course, that's what they say. I, I don't, you know, there's a possibility this is wrong, but that it's not impacting the testing of the rest of the population in Utah. And Utah is doing okay in t- on testing and has, you know, they're caught up as far as reports have said when in terms of testing. So it seems like the NWSL has done a lot of things right. It's just an extreme restriction on, you know, the, the, rights of the athletes. Um, and it helps that it's a small group. It helps that it's only a month long tournament, right? So you're not having to isolate in this way for three months or something like that. So there, there are a few things working in its favor. Most of all, I think the fact that they're in Utah, they are not in Florida. So the WNBA and the NBA, and of course, Major League Soccer are all playing in Florida. This week, we saw WNBA players move into their campus on IMG. And, you know, what, what got a lot of attention, first of all, was, you know, some players would uh, share photos of a mousetrap in the laundry room. And there was one laundry room that was really decrepit. There were, there were, you know, there was bugs, but I don't know, for me, I'm like, there's bugs in Florida. Like, that's just the reality. But I, I certainly understand that there were problems with some of the housing. The WNBA worked really hard um, and IMG to immediately take care of the problems. And as far as I know, those are all taken care of. To me, what's more concerning is when you look at how the WNBA is doing things, there's not even really the semblance of a bubble. Like already the players were only quarantined completely for a few days. They're already, I mean, they're supposed to keep kind of their six feet of distance, but you see players talking to all these players on the other teams already. There are other people on the IMG campus right now that some are walking around without masks. Like there are other events going on. I've reached out to the WNBA trying to figure out how they're keeping everyone separate and safe. But, you know, I'm still, the WNBA has not been transparent about its protocols. The NWSL has been extremely transparent about its protocols. The WNBA hasn't at all. The teams are going to start scrimmaging each, uh, against each other as quickly as next week. So, like, there's, it's just to me, like, everything I hear, it's, doing this report in this last week, every single thing I heard about the NWSL's protocols made me feel better. And every single thing I heard about the WNBA's protocols made me feel worse. And... Um, you know, the MLS tournament, I think, is being is more similar to the, what the WNBA is doing there at Disney World. And they've had positive tests. They just had a game canceled this morning because of positive test. And it seems that COVID is actually being spread within the bubble now because, of course, when we say bubble, it's not really a bubble, we know, because it looks like the gestation time of the illness, like the players who are diagnosed, it seems like there's no way that 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 they contracted it outside of, you know, before they got to Orlando. So I'm just so anxious and so worried. At the same time, I talked to these WNBA players. Uh, I was on a press call with Neka Gumake last night, and she's so, you know, she's the president of the Players Association. She's so, so proud of what the league is doing. You know, these players are not dumb. So I feel like there must be something I'm missing on the protocol side. 
um, that is making them feel safer about this. Um, they're so proud that they are getting paid their full salaries, even though it's a shortened season, that they fought for that. A lot of them, they don't know when their next paycheck is coming from, if not from this summer, because uh, who knows what overseas is going to look like, right? And that's where these players usually make the bulk of their money. So I have this conflict of really wanting to support these players and how hard they've worked and how hard the Players Association has worked to get to this point. And yet, I I don't really trust that they're all going to be safe. And I think something that sums up the difference between kind of the risk the men are taking versus the risk the women are taking is actually on the PGA uh, and LPGA side of things. So if you don't have a guaranteed salary in those tournament in those organizations, you have to play in order to win. So they have the PGA has it that if the player enters a tournament and gets tested and is diagnosed with COVID, they still get seventy five thousand dollars. So they don't get nothing. LPGA players who will start back will get $5,000 of diagnosed with COVID on site, like in the tournament, and $2,500 if they test positive at home. And honestly, even though it's such little money, the LPGA players, most of them really need that money desperately. So this is always to say, like, I am so conflicted and I keep wondering, is there any way to do this ethically, even on the professional level, with regard to player safety um, and also from, you know, resource allocation perspective, every, all the reporting in Florida says that the MLS and NBA, and I'm trying to figure out about the WNBA, are taking tests away from the general population, which I think is probably the most bothersome thing about any of this. Jess, what, what do you, how do you feel? Yeah, I, I don't support sports coming back. I understand everything you just said about the money in it and athletes wanting to play, I think it's a really bad look. I think it really puts forward an idea that we are doing okay when we are not doing okay. It's wild. A lot of this is happening in Florida. And I think one thing that's interesting is that when um, if we look at the MLB, it's the one professional league that has a team up in Canada. We, the NHL hasn't come back yet, right? Uh, and so they have the Blue Jays like hanging out in Toronto. And it came out this week that because Canada has a f- federal quarantine act that if any of them break the bubble they could they could get a huge fine like seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars but also they could go to jail so the idea that like canada as a country sees this that severely like the issue is that much of a crisis compared to like what's happening in florida and even utah i don't know i don't know how you look at this and say that this is ethically okay and i certainly don't feel like it is and just to be clear, I do not support using the carceral state to enforce any of this, which yeah, is Yeah, awful. absolutely. That's such a it's, horrible idea. And it's like, don't put people it, in jail right so, now, too, because COVID, okay. Right. Anyway. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, no, I just think that it's not a surprise that people want to play because, like, I want to go to work. Like people want people want to not be living under quarantine and under COVID. Like I think that that is not surprising to me. But I think the danger that Jess laid out is not only does this give a false sense, especially how it's covered of of things going back to normal and um but it looks fun. Like to me that literally looks like summer camp. And um, NECA bought Chipotle for everybody. And my daughter on IG had just sung this whole song about how much she wanted Chipotle. So I had sent it to NECA. And Samari literally said, 
see, they have Chipotle, take me to the Wubble. And it's like, that's not where you actually want to be, though. Like, it's not. And I think that that's a real danger. And we talked about this before, is like using sports to lead on this kind of unity. We're all back. We're all together. While Disney World is opening, while Florida cases are surging. It's just not the time and it's frustrating because I so want it to be as well but it's just no it's not no like no of course the over all of this the you know part of this conversation is that we've touched on a few times is you know the racism that permeates the system and we've seen a couple of examples this past week of exactly how little the people in charge do care about their black athletes. And, you know, for me, that makes it especially hard to believe that these protocols, that there's any good faith measure in these protocols. Amira, I know you were close to one of these stories. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a tale as old as time in terms of disproportionate managerial or, or kind of leadership where who has the power i talked about this when we talked about gundy and we talked about athletes speaking up um and of course this week there was a story on the undefeated by jesse washington about rasir bolton uh, who transferred from penn state and he was coming forward now to talk about why and one of the things that he was talking about was a comment that was made to him in the days after um, pat chambers head basketball coach here had pushed another black student athlete he made a, a, a comment saying he wanted to loosen the noose around Dressier's neck. What followed was almost worse for him and his family in terms of not taking the comment seriously, in terms of um, forwarding him to a sports psychologist uh, here who helped, said he was going to help him learn how to quote unquote deal with Chambers' personality. His parents got involved and came here. Chambers said, oh, they're so articulate, just like layers and layers of bullshit. He ultimately transferred. But this story came out now because he saw that Chambers was slated to speak to on Zoom to a conference for basketball coaches about how to have tough conversations in this moment. And that was the final straw because he should not be on a panel as an expert. Your proximity to Black athletes does not actually make you an expert on Blackness or navigating this moment in talking about uh, white supremacy. Actually, the opposite, quite frankly. But I think one of the things I want to highlight about that is everything in this case reveals to you the system that we're operating with. First of all, it's hard to transfer. One of the reasons the story had to come out is because if, again, if you're an athlete and you're transferring, you need to have all of these exemptions that you apply for if you don't want to sit out for a year. And which is to say that he had to on record say, this is what I experienced and get Penn State to sign off on that before if he wanted to play and not miss a year. If Chambers wanted to leave tomorrow to the next school, there is no penalty. There is no delay. And so you see how it's stacked already against uh, college athletes. What's more is the idea that the university was like, great, the problem here is getting this this young man to adjust to this coaching style instead of sitting their coach down and saying, you absolutely cannot use that language and this is inappropriate. And then his bullshit answer even this week was, I'm from the North, I didn't know the context of that statement, which, hello, we're in Pennsylvania, but let me tell you how many times I've seen the stars and bars here. Like, you understand that Confederate insignia and conversations about nuisance, do we have to talk about all the people who were lynched in Pennsylvania? Because we can do that 
In fact, we had an event here just last year about Pennsylvania lynching victims. So <laughs> no, don't buy it. And so this is the, these are the systems that are still worrying in the middle of COVID, in the middle of uh, a rising kind of awareness around white supremacy and Black Lives Matter. In this, these systems are still worrying and churning in their systems that habitually disadvantage um, and marginalize athletes, particularly black and brown athletes, as we can continue to see. And this was just another reminder of that same person on the panel telling you how to navigate this moment is, you know, probably has skeleton ghosts, ghouls in their closet as well. And Jess, we've seen some evidence of this at the pro level too. What's happened uh, with the Atlanta Dream? Yeah, what a week, right? So on Monday this past week, the WNBA announced that the summer season is going to be dedicated to social justice. It will honor the Black Lives Movement and specifically Say Her Name, which focuses on Black women who've been harmed or killed by state violence and police brutality. The very next day on Tuesday, Kelly Loeffler, the co-owner of the Dream, a Republican senator from Georgia, and an insider an inside trader who should be investigated by the Senate Ethics Committee. Uh, she wrote a little op-ed in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution where she wrote, quote, The truth is, we need less, not more politics in sports. In a time when polarizing politics is as divisive as ever, sports has the power to be a unifying antidote. I adamantly oppose, then she goes to be divisive, I love it. I adamantly oppose the Black Lives Matter political movement, which has advocated for the defunding of police, called for the removal of Jesus from churches, huh? And the disruption of the nuclear family structure, harbored anti-Semitic views, and promoted violence and destruction across the country. So we've already discussed multiple times the false notion of unity in sports. We did it a couple episodes ago, and we talked about what athlete activism will look like when sports returns. Leffler clearly doesn't even know what Black Lives Matter is. A lot of the players and the WNBPA immediately called for Leffler to sell the team, get out of the league, go away. She then doubled down on Wednesday on Fox News and so did a bunch of players, right? Like everyone has like decided like what side they are on here. And I feel okay speaking for all of Burn It All Down when I say that we agree that she's got to go. She's been on our burn pile multiple times, I believe. I mean, she just needs to go. What I don't know, and this is a frustration with all of this, is how this works. I'm not sure anyone really knows at this point. People keep pointing to what happened with Sterling and the NBA as an example. How can the exit happen? What are the mechanisms to get rid of her as an owner? Who exactly can make that happen? Because it, like, it's, <laughs> it's bad. She's bad for the WNBA, for all of us, really. But that this she just functions as another example of how of the power dynamics in the ownership model and professional sports. And even as Amira talked about with collegiate sports, right, the way these systems are set up, it's so difficult to hold those at the top accountable for their actions and actually work against them when they deserve to be held accountable for these things. And now. Shireen's interview with Dr. Janice Forsyth. Hello, flamethrowers. Shireen here. I am so excited to have our next guest on the show today, Dr. Janice Forsyth. Dr. Janice Forsyth is a Canadian Associate Professor of Sociology and the Director of the Indigenous Studies Program at Western University in London, Ontario. She is also the author of the recently published Reclaiming Tom Longboat, Indigenous Self-Determination in Canadian Sport. In addition to these wonderful things, brilliant researcher, she's also a connoisseur of hard tacos. Hello, Dr. Forsyth. Hi, Shireen. How are you? And how have you, is that even a question we ask normally during these 
pandemic times? It's a tough one to answer. Yeah, I just, uh, I don't know how to answer it anymore. I think I just say my sanity is intact and my health appears to be good. So everything is fine. That's a great answer, actually. <laughs> let's talk. Oh, there's so many things I want to ask you. But first, let's talk about your book. Congratulations on your launch. <laughs> Can you tell me a little about the history and how you came across Tom Longboat and what historical figure represents in the landscape of Canadian media? Sure. So, I mean, and I think I need to preface it by saying that the book really isn't about Tom Longboat, although like Tom Longboat's story is tangential to the history of the Tom Longboat Awards, which is what the book is about. But you can't talk about the Tom Longboat Awards. But I've always been, you know, fascinated with um, Tom Longboat's story, I think, as many Canadians have also been. He's someone who uh, achieved worldwide fame, who was really a superstar back in the early 1900s. Uh, for people who don't know, he was uh, a runner, a distance runner, Onondaga from the Six Nations uh, in Ontario, in Southern Ontario, and competed, you know, between uh, 1906 and about 1912, and won nearly every major race that you could win at the time. And he had ticker tape parades, media would follow him, they would write about everything, you know, about his life. And so it's, you know, kind of like the early version of the paparazzi. And so, you know, I just, I was really interested in, you know, how an Indigenous athlete navigated that complicated terrain, myself being an Indigenous athlete, my membership and my family is from Fisher River Cree Nation in Manitoba, about two hours north of Winnipeg, and also uh, Peguas. And uh, so growing up and knowing my own experiences about being an Indigenous athlete in sport, of course, I became very interested in what Tom Longboat's experiences might have been like. That's amazing. And I think for me, when I first, I only learned about Tom Longboat as an athlete, Indigenous athlete, the first time I met you, I went back and started to Google a whole bunch of things because mm -hmm. I had met you at that conference um, in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I was just so wild because there's so much we don't know, particularly how, like you said, he navigated and this country in, in Canada specifically has a very brutal colonial history and his timing and, and being, you know, just in relation to all the stuff about Indigenous communities and First Nations that we were not taught including residential schools and, you know, decimation of communities and forced relocation, et cetera, et cetera. So all these things played in and what that legacy is. Do you see a rise in Indigenous young athletes coming up and learning their histories and sharing those? Oh, absolutely. And I think that is fundamentally going to change the, the landscape of sport. And hopefully we can talk a little bit about that. But um, it really is, it's good to see young people learning about not only the, the history of colonialism in Canada, but also mm -hmm. how, you know, their families and their communities and even themselves have responded to, you know, those systemic pressures to, to assimilate and to get rid of their cultures and even histories of genocide. Uh, so it, there's this real brutal history, as you say, of colonialism that people have to understand and navigate. And this is a really difficult and emotional you know, a lot, an emotional journey for Indigenous people to do, and especially the youth. Uh, but at the same time, I think that needs to be balanced out and understood alongside all of the ways that Indigenous people have uh, navigated that terrain and made really difficult decisions in very trying circumstances. Because that, you know, for me shows the, the determination and the will to live. So as a Cree woman, as an academic, as an athlete, 
my question is when people say in that rhetoric that we despise so much of stick to sports, how can Indigenous athletes respond to this? Like the whole idea in existence has, like you said, been one of survival. And we've seen stories of incredible Indigenous women runners running or athletes who have painted hands across their mouths to represent missing emerging Indigenous women and girls across Turtle Island. So like this idea of stick to sports, how would you respond to that? Yeah, you know, it's uh, it's taken me a long time, I think, to get uh, the vocabulary and the words to express um, how complicated sport is. Mm-hmm. And, and there aren't, for me, there aren't enough public discussions uh, about how complicated it is. I, I think people, even in Indigenous communities, tend to think about the positives of sport, which makes it really difficult then to talk about how complex of a space sport is. And, you know, when something negative comes up, uh, for instance, you know, right now we see a lot of discussion about individual experiences with racism and sometimes, you know, systemic issues with racism in sport. Um, people think of it as a, a one-off, right, or that it's limited to, you know, a certain sport. And it's really difficult for people to make broader connections to, for instance, you know, how sport is connect- in the Indigenous context, how sport is connected to Indigenous assimilation in Canada. And it's because, you know, they don't know the history of how sport was part of the broader colonial mandate policy imperative to remove Indigenous people from the land, to change their cultural practices, and to, you know, make them good workers and good citizens of the, the growing capitalist state. And sport is very much a part of that. And so for me, I think it's really important that we we talk more about this complicated side of sport, just like we're doing right now, so that people have the language to express what they're feeling and to be able to explain their thoughts better. There's this quote by an academic, uh, she wrote her PhD uh, many years ago when I was doing my PhD. I'm just showing how bad my memory is. I read this PhD and the author is Bombarian and I believe she's from Six Nations and she wasn't writing about sport. She was writing about um, self-determination in Six Nations. But one of the examples that she was using about self-determination and how challenging it is for people to talk about self-determination and express what it means to them. Uh, she used a sporting example and, and she talked about how her body expressed what her mind could not and she mm-hmm. basically it was that, you know, she took out her frustrations on the sporting field, you know, and so everything that she was feeling was influencing uh, the way she did sport. And that for me really resonated with me at the time because I didn't know how to express what I was feeling either. I didn't know how to talk about it because there aren't a lot of public discussions about this. Whereas if you move over to the education sector, for instance, or maybe even the health sector, where there's these ongoing long conversations in media and in the public and in academia about, you know, how complex education is. Like you would never hear people saying, oh, well, you just have to get your kids to school. You know, the Indigenous kids just just put them in school and everything will be fine because school is really good. I think we've deconstructed that narrative enough to know that people would never say that education is a form of socialization into a way of thinking. Right. 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 And so we have to create, you know, new ways of understanding our history, new ways of understanding everything in order to make, you know, our lives more equitable through education. And the same, you know, is with sport. And then what I find oftentimes is when they are talking, it gets taken up by media in a very simplistic way so that it reinforces, you know, the dominant narrative. And then Mm -hmm. nothing gets changed because, 
you know, the, the speaker has a hard time explaining it and the listener has a hard time understanding what the speaker is trying to say. Yeah, I think there's a cyclical problem here, particularly of when there is a lack of Indigenous storytelling within sports media. I mean, the mainstream industry, and I harp about this all the time, is honestly almost 90% white, cis-set, able-bodied men. And the lens with which they tell those stories is very, very narrow. And I think there's a really important and interwoven way that sports can be part of storytelling in, in a way. And we had a Tracy Liast on the show a couple of years ago and when the Indigenous Games were actually in Toronto. And she had spoken about her journey as a Métis woman, a very young woman, running so long just because that's the way that she felt she could best express how her feelings mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of coming to terms with understanding the history and the present crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women and the lack of attention to it. And so very much sport can be a way. It's also really interesting to hear you because on the one hand, it is a part of socialization and was part of the practice of, of colonization. But then you see, you know, you hear stories of Indigenous sports folks and whether it be hockey teams or lacrosse teams or, you know, just really important uh, pieces of, of Indigenous folks. So do you, my next question, I'll sort of piggyback off that, is do you think that having Indigenous athletes interconnected into mainstream sports is important or to have their own spaces like the North American Indigenous Games, which were to be held in Halifax on Mi'kmaq land, but are postponed until next year. Do you think both are important or do you think having your own space is, mm -hmm. is more of a priority? Well, I'm a, I'm a proponent of both. I, I think it's really important for Indigenous people to have access to spaces that are Indigenous-led because those spaces are in many ways safe because it, you know Indigenous-led sporting spaces are led by people who generally understand the what makes Indigenous sport unique and, and different from the mainstream. And it's it's usually not being about strictly performance, right? There are many other um, values that are expressed through Indigenous sport. Usually it's about youth development or community development or family or community. There's something much bigger than the self that is attached to Indigenous sport and also about cultural identity. Whereas in mainstream sport, it's, you know, mostly about performance, performance-oriented goals, and also national identity. So it's, I think it's important to have Indigenous people on those stages, uh, both stages, including the mainstream stage, the what I call the dominant sport system or the mainstream system, you know, as long as they can express, you know, their feelings about being Indigenous in that system and, you know, be given latitude to um, celebrate their own cultural identities in a way that is important to them. So I see value in both. And, and, and I think it's really important to have both there so that people could choose which way they want to go. Because right now with the Indigenous sports system, we don't have like the high profile platforms and the generally the, the major international games that you see in the mainstream system. Like there are no Pan American Games or international federations and no Olympic Games, right, for Indigenous people in Canada. The highest level in the Indigenous sports system is the North American Indigenous Games. And it's it's a really 
wonderful space because you can see Olympians compete, you know, and athletes are competing in international mainstream sport, competing alongside kids who maybe are trying out sport for the first time. And it's, it's a truly unique space. Amazing. And on that note, the North American Indigenous Games have been postponed. Do you think that was the right call in light of this global pandemic? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just, uh, you have to keep people safe. And mm. and I think, especially when it comes to Indigenous communities, because one of the things I think that we're learning right now is that Indigenous communities are um, struggling differently than many people uh, right. because of overcrowded conditions and communities and you know, maybe not being able to access the same sort of health resources that are available in urban centers. So it would have been a really bad idea, I think, to host the NAG. I don't even know if they could have anyway. I mean, there's all sorts of administrative reasons why they couldn't have hosted the NAG, insurance being one of them. Right. And, you know, what I what I do worry about, though, and there's not a lot of talk about it, is without the NAG, you know, this really gives communities something to look for. It gives the youth something to look for. It's it's just a, it's a real event in a community's and in the youth's kind of perspective. Whereas I think it's important, of course, in mainstream society, like for kids to go to the Canada Games. But I'm not sure it it defines them, and I'm not sure it's a a life changing game changer like we talk about the North American Indigenous Games as being like a suicide preventer. Mm. And you don't hear that same sort of discussion happening about the Canada Games. Like if the kids don't go to the Canada Games, it's not like the suicide rates go up. So, you know, there is a concern about what sort of impact this will have on our kids in the community. And uh, postponing the Games was a good idea. But I do get concerned about what is going to happen to these kids through the winter when we know the suicide rates go up. If there's something that our listeners can do to help support Indigenous athletes, what would it be? Is it just to start learning? Is it to start, start donating to understand the stories? Like where would where would we start? Listening to people's stories uh, from reliable sources is, is a really good thing. Thinking about it from their own perspective is a really good thing. Acknowledging that there is such a thing as colonialism, as systemic oppression, as, as racism, as discrimination. And then, you know, thinking about how that privileges where we sit, and that includes myself, right? You know, how does my own position, you know, how is it privileged and and how does my privilege influence other people who don't have the same access to resources? And then, you know, just speaking out about it. And it doesn't have to be, you know, running out into the street and carrying banners. It doesn't have to be you know, going out and joining protests, and it doesn't have to be getting all excited about things. It can be something really simple, such as, you know, if you hear someone make a statement that is just inaccurate, you can just correct them, right? No, you know, you can say, but no, actually, there is a history of oppression, and and it's widespread, and it's through the Indian Act, so it's historic, and Indigenous people are working really hard, you know, to try and make life better for themselves in the government and corporations need to sit up and listen. So Mm -hmm. maybe we can support that. Yeah, definitely. We're seeing a lot of this uh, conversation about Native musketry right now and revisiting the idea of, you know, the Edmonton CFL team renaming themselves, whereas previously they didn't care. They didn't want to hear the cries and the, you know, resistance from Indigenous and First Nations communities that were saying, like, don't use 
our cultural symbols as your mascots. And, and we see that happening now, but it's, you know, I'm trying not to be too, too cynical, but of course, sports has never led me to be, you know, extremely positive or rather federations or organizations and teams and front offices. They're not the source of my joy in sport for sure. But do you see, is there a frustration perhaps? Like you see the conversations happening now only when the corporations kick in and the sponsors of the teams are saying, we don't want this. And now suddenly they seem to be paying attention, whether it's the Washington NFL team with a racial slur as a team name. Like, do you feel that way as somebody who has an expertise in this? Yeah, I think, I guess one of the frustrations that I have right now is, you know, if we tie it back to my book, for instance, you know, we really don't know anything about Tom Longboat and what he thought about his experiences. We, we think we do, but we actually don't like there. He didn't leave any journals. He didn't leave any diaries. He didn't leave any letters or none that we know of, you know, that the histories are based on. And so what we know about Tom Longboat is gleaned from analysis of media. Mm. And, And so we don't really know how Tom Longboat felt, but we can know you know, what people who are living today think about their experiences in sport. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad, you know, that the entry point for these discussions is, you know, racism. But one of my frustrations right now is just, it seems to be stuck on these, what I'm calling these superficial discussions about racism in sport, where it's about, you know, you're getting athletes coming forward, talking about their experiences And a lot of it is about individual experiences with racism. And there are very few in-depth discussions, insightful discussions about how those experiences are tied to broader systemic issues. And I think the mascot issue is is a good case in point because, you know, corporations are part and parcel of this problem Mm -hmm. of ongoing colonization in sport where Indigenous people don't have the authority, right, the power the self determination mm-hmm. to make these changes without there being like <laughs> blowback of immense proportions, both from the corporations and I mean you've got like everybody engaged in the conversation and it's it's like if if you can't see how the, the mascot issue is such a problem, you know imagine then trying to change government structures that are so embedded and have been there for such a long time mm-hmm. that it's, you know, it's, it's just a really difficult. So it's for me, like uh, I would love for this conversation, you know, uh, with athletes on racism and sport to include a broader discussion with researchers and administrators about what is going wrong systemically and how can we change it? So how does indigenous sport link to health, link to education link to justice, link to youth development. And how can we do a better job of making sport play a better role in supporting broader community development for Indigenous people? Thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. How can our listeners find your work? Well, I've got, I, well, like, most academics, I I really don't have this full-fledged kind of place where you can find me and all of the stuff that I do, but I do have a personal website. Mm-hmm. It's uh, my first and last name, uh, J-A-N-I-C-E-F-O-R-S-Y-T-H dot C-A. And there you can find my list of publications, some of my media, and some of the work that I do. And I'm trying to build out that website because I think it's really important to have an online presence nowadays. But for now, it's that's about it. It's awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show, Dr. Forsyth. You're yeah, welcome. Thanks anytime. so much, Shereen. <laughs> Take I care. It.
But now we have lots of little burns to get to, although I would should say shorter burns, but not smaller in um, significance. Let's go to the burn pile. Bren, can you get us started? Sure. In Romania, the president of Club FCSB, Gigi Bacali, has been fined around $15,000 and suspended for four months. This is not the first time that Bacali has been sanctioned for his gender discrimination. Bacali recently publicly stated that women should not play football in response to the Federation making it a requirement for all top clubs to have a women's team. And it's important to note that this comes amidst major challenges to gender equality in the region. The Romanian legislature has sent a bill to the country's president to stop accreditation of gender studies at universities. Neighboring Hungary did something pretty much the same a couple of years ago. In Poland, uh, the president, uh, Duda, who is seeking a second term, described LGBT rights as more dangerous than communism. And this is uh, Bakali's second or third chance. He's not a powerless person. He was member of the European Parliament uh, between 2009 and 2012 and member of Romanian Parliament until 2013. He has remarked, for example, Bakali, that women have no more value after they give birth to children. This led to 26 women reporting him to the Discriminatory Council in Romania. So he's, you know, he's still in football after four months. And I want to burn the fact that repeat offenders like this, <laughs> you just you just can't seem to get rid of them. It's so easy to get rid of people who are challenging sexism, but so hard to get rid of the sexist. So I want to burn his statements. I want to burn that he had such a soft punishment um, at the same time, it is somewhat amazing to me that he's punished at all, given the history of this. So I do want to throw in a little celebration that he is likely not sorry, nor convinced, but at least he is annoyed and shamed by people in global football working against this discrimination. Burn. 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 Amira? The Red Sox and about their continued both the MLB and the Red Sox continually not dealing with a uh, decades law lawsuit about racism and sexual abuse. In particularly, this has been ramped up given that the MLB eventually joined in saying Black Lives Matter, um, as well as individual teams. And yet while they're saying that and the Red Sox are publicly disavowing racism in Fenway and beyond, they still have yet to deal, both them and the league, with the fallout from a former clubhouse manager, uh, Donald Fitzy Fitzpatrick, who pled guilty to criminal charges, uh, criminal charges of sexual battery back in uh, 2002. He used Red Sox memorabilia to lure young black clubhouse workers into secluded area of the spring training facility and abuse them. But beyond that, this is also evidence that he's done so in other ballparks in Fenway and across the league. 21 of the people on the lawsuit, out of the 21 people on the lawsuit, 15 are black men who have come forward to talk about this abuse over the last decade. Charles Crawford, who's 45 now, uh, talked about being abused as a 16-year-old in 1991. And he said, seeing this statement was, quote, another slap in the face for me. Now would be a good time for the Red Sox to show everyone that they mean what they say. 
he's joined by uh, a number of other men, Black men, who have come forward and said this is important to talk about and to be addressed that has gone way too often unaddressed. One such person said it's especially important because he wants to encourage all Black men who are a victim of child sex abuse to overcome the shame or embarrassment that they feel so that they can acknowledge what was done to them and get counseling they need. He said, quote, I think a lot of Black men have been molested and for cultural reasons, they don't come forward to deal with it. And if you don't deal with it, you're looking at a lot of emotional problems. And what we have here is a league and an organization that is very easy to say, oh, that's in the past. It's time to move on from that. That's prior ownership. And yet have done nothing to make right, particularly particularly for these 15 Black men and six other men who have yet to get a settlement or any sort of even redress besides empty worded apologies for the abuse that they experience at the hands of a a admitted um, abuser. And it's disgusting, and I would like to burn it down. Burn. Jess? Yeah, so we've talked a lot over the years here on Burn It All Down about abuse, sexual, physical, emotional within USA Gymnastics and NCAA Gymnastics. But we've also discussed abuse in all kinds of sports and all over the world. I don't think it's a reach to say that in many ways abuse is at the heart of sports. And one thing that we see happens is that when a survivor, a group of survivors comes forward, it's common for others to follow. So this week, in the wake of the new Netflix documentary about abuse in USA Gymnastics, Athlete A, a group of British gymnasts have begun to speak out about the abuse they've suffered in the sport. Catherine Lyons, a former junior and British champion, she's now 19, she told ITV she was hit, struck with a stick, shouted at, and locked in a cupboard by her coach. She also says she was starved for a week and struggled to eat normally after that. Lisa Mason, Commonwealth Games gold medalist and an Olympian for Britain in 2000, says, quote, My coach put me on the bars until my hands ripped and bled. I would also have AstroTurf put under the bars so I would burn my feet if I didn't keep them up but everyone else is going through it, so you think it's normal. She also says she was locked in rooms and told not to eat. Natalie Mutia, a retired British rhythmic gymnast who is now 40, told The Telegraph about the long-term impact of the abuse she suffered, quote, I very recently had an official diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder relating to my experiences, so it's a little bit heightened in me. 30 years ago, we didn't have safeguarding, but to think it's still going on, I feel really angry about it. She says she remembers girls being slapped in the face by coaches. Her coaches were emotionally abusive, constantly fat-shaming her, and she was forced on the pill at a young age to counteract puberty. She reported the abuse five years ago to British Gymnastics, and she has yet to hear back from them. Former British Olympic gymnast and current UCLA gymnastics assistant coach Jennifer Pinches wrote a piece for The Telegraph this week in which she said, quote, in the past week, I have read a lot of I have read a lot of people saying that they are reported a coach who is still coaching now. I know for a fact there are current coaches and gymnasts who are afraid to post our message of support because they do not want to impact their career. Obviously, there is still a culture of fear. And finally, Mark Staniforth at PA Media reported that a gymnast who represented Team GB at the 2016 Olympics but has since retired, quote, submitted a wide-ranging complaint towards the end of, la- end of last year. The complaint, Staniforth writes, includes reports of bullying and threatening behavior by coaches. It's been more than eight months now since the complaint was officially filed and British Gymnastics has yet to respond. British Gymnastics, for their part, has said they will be opening an investigation into all of this. But if USA Gymnastics has taught us anything over the last few years, it's to expect avoidance, slowness, and perhaps even purposeful obstruction. All of this really drove home for me again how destructive sports can be wherever they exist. 
At the same time, it's always powerful to see a group of people who have long felt silenced by the power structures in place to finally feel like they can speak up. I truly hope there are changes and soon because there are young children who are in this system right now. But for now, let's at least burn all of this abuse and British gymnastics disinterest in it up to this point. Burn. 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 I just, after our conversation, I just have to, I want to burn what's happening in the United States. I want to burn our leadership. I want to burn our failed handling of the pandemic because it did not have to be this way. Sports returning did not have to be so anxiety inducing. These colleges should not be having to make these decisions. Pro athletes shouldn't have to be making these decisions. There was a way for everyone to sacrifice for a little bit of time for the government to take care of everyone with financial support and resources during that time. And then for everyone to start moving back towards a more mobile life slowly. And our government has failed us on the local level, on the state level, and especially on the federal level. And the consequences are, I mean, the deaths are, of course, the most important thing, but up and down, there's just devastating story after devastating story about ways their mishandling has impacted all of us and changed lives forever for the worse. So just want to throw our leadership onto the burn pile. Burn. Burn. All right. Uh, after all that burning, it is time to lift up some badass women of the week. First, want to give a shout out to the WNBA Social Justice Council. This was announced this week. Um, Jessica mentioned it a bit earlier, but the games will honor the Black Lives Matter movement and specifically the Say Her Name campaign and the Social Justice Council, which will be a driving force of necessary and continuing conversation about race, voting rights, LBGTQ plus advocacy and gun control, amongst other issues inside the bubble and outside the bubble. So the players attached to the council are Lasia Clarendon, Sydney Colson, Brianna Stewart, Tierra Ruffin Pratt, Asia Wilson, and Satu Sabali. So good job, everyone. The Atlanta Hawks NBA G League affiliate, the College Park Skyhawks, announced Tori Miller as their new general manager, making her the first woman to hold the title of general manager in the history of the NBA G League. Cheers to the LA Sparks Chanae Agumake, who will be co-hosting a new daily national radio show for ESPN alongside Mike Golick Jr. She opted out of playing this WNBA season and has clearly um, making sure her voice is still heard. She's the first black woman and first WNBA player to co-host a national daily ESPN radio show, getting more black voices, getting more female voices, and especially getting more black female voices on sports radio is a huge, huge win. Shout out to former Chicago Sky assistant coach Bridget Pettis, who left the team citing increasing health concerns for players and social arrest around the country. She's now going to uh, focus on her nonprofit, Project Roots Arizona, which aims to educate the community on growing their own food through various educational programs, and it also supports the homeless. Kick for Life FC in Lesotho became the world's first top-flight club to fund men's and women's teams equally. That is incredible. And can I get a drum roll, please? Our Badass Woman of the Week is Carol Lawson, uh, Tennessee and WNBA star who was just named the head coach of the Duke Women's Basketball Program. As 
look, a diehard Tar Heel fan, it's pretty hard for me to give Duke any kudos, but hiring Kara Lawson is an absolute brilliant choice. It's going to revitalize that program. And this means that three out of the four openings for head coach in women's college basketball this offseason were filled by black women who used to play in the WNBA, Nikki McRae, Kara Lawson, and Niel Ivey. That is a trend that we need to continue. Kudos. Okay, friends, what is good, Bren? <laughs> I put, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but I do, I do know a couple things. I'm sorry. I am feeling like the drain of of the pandemic right now. And I'm luckier than most. But I will say it's been a really rainy week here in New York off and on, and alternately incredibly hot. So a lot of indoor time, which is hard with kids. But one thing is that finally, my youngest has discovered Legos. I have kept the oldest Legos for many years, occupying a tremendous amount of space and intermittently injuring my feet when they end up on the floor and um, just in the hopes that she would, you know, take up her sister's old passions. And she finally did. And we've got all the specs laid out and um, lots more foot injuries to come, but it's super fun. And I love it. And I find it really like super relaxing to look for two hours for one annoying piece and so satisfying when I find it. So that's been super fun and good in my world. I love that. Jess? Yeah. So I, uh, as I was prepping this this week, I really felt like Shireen. So just bear with me. <laughs> uh, my family went up to Dallas. We rented an Airbnb <laughs> for a few days. And this house had a pool, a massage chair, which we are now talking about buying one, and a soaker tub, which was is such a... I love soaking in a tub and we don't have one that I fit in here. So that was lovely. Last night, Aaron and I actually watched two movies that I really liked on Hulu. One was called Plus One and Maya Erskine is the woman in it and she's fabulous. People might know her from Pen 15 and then Palm Springs with Andy Samberg and Kristen Milioti. I just loved this movie so much. I can't believe how much I like Andy Samberg. It's like his really... It's a real mind fuck for me. I read an amazing romance novel this week. So if that's your thing, Queen Move by Kendall Ryan. It is so, so good. I loved every word in there. And then my dog went to get his heartworm treatment this week on Thursday. Ralph did. And they basically gave him a shot of arsenic. And Thursday was hard. He cried a lot. But he seems to be doing fine now. And so I was really worried about how it would go. And so it's actually been really good overall so far. And then I won't be here next week because a week from today is my 17th wedding anniversary with Aaron. So um, that makes me very happy. That's amazing. Congratulations. Thanks. (laughs) Amira, I saw your notes in the doc and have been dying to figure out the meaning behind all of them. What is this (laughs) for you? <laughs> yeah, so my what's good all stems from um it's really I have auto um, immune issues and it's really hard to manage in the middle of COVID because I can't do things with the regularity that I normally would, including blood draws or iron supplements at the hospital and things like that. So just my what's good is all of the kind of wellness things that I've been doing at home. So one, I discovered acupressure mats, which are amazing. You can get them 
many places I got it from Time Be Well, which is a, a independent smaller shop. And so it's a mat that has spiky lotus things that hit all your pressure points that you would, if you were going to acupressure, acupuncture, usually engage. And I have mine comes with like a neck pillow as well. And so you can use it. You can stand on it through your feet. You can lay on your back. You can, I opened up my hips yesterday. So I did 10 minutes on each side. Um, I would say the first time I laid on it, I did 20, you're supposed to do 20 to 40 minutes. And it relaxed me so much that I fell asleep. And you know, I don't sleep. So that is really a testament to that. There's also a new Pakistani cafe that has come to town. They A, season their food, which I really appreciate, but also they make this wonderful herbal tea, daybreak tea with turmeric and ginger and licorice and all the things I need in my life. And that tea, I've been drinking like two cups a day from them, honestly. And it, that has been intensely healing. And then of course, of you know, I'm, I know you're sick of hearing about my Peloton, but you won't get me to stop talking about it. Pelothon is starting tomorrow. It's four weeks. They've divided everybody up, all the instructors up to six teams, and then you choose and you rep your team and you wear colors. It's like, if you know me, it's perfect. It's like inject it all into my veins. It's all um, supporting $1 million of donation from the company into nonprofit partners, particularly dealing with hunger around the world. So in New York, in the UK, in Berlin, where they also work, and then Daily Bread Food Bank as well. And this comes on the heels of another $100 million commitment to racial justice uh, organizations and internal things that they're working on too. So I'm really excited to get competitive for a good cause. I have my team colors decked out and I'm ready to rock and roll tomorrow. So all these things have been enormously healing in multiple ways. Um, and I'm just really thankful for the ability to focus on wellness at home, uh, even during this time. Oh, Amir, you make it so hard to mock Peloton as much as I want to because you tie it in mm-hmm. all this serious wellness stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> all I want to do is really keep mocking you about this. I'm about to bite my tongue off. So. <laughs> Brendan, and I, Brendan, Brendan and I don't have tongues anymore because we're really <laughs> You can still mock this whole week when you see me being like, look, legend, no limit legend. What is it? No Limit Legion or Legends of Fun. I'm on Team Unstoppable. It's a cult. It really feels like a cult. Um, It's the best cult I've ever been a part of. As opposed to all the other cults. Um, We're we're Geminis. It can happen. For me, and this is tough because I realize this goes against a lot of what we decided in our segment today. But, um, you know, it's women athletes. It's I've been on a lot of Zoom press conferences. I've been, you know, talking to a lot of players and... You know, part of the reason I want them to be safe is because these are just such amazing people. And it's been invigorating for me to be hearing from them, to be um, talking with them this week, and to be, you know, being entertained by them. Um, If you're not following Maisha Hines Allen on all social media, she is um, a power forward for the Washington Mystics and a TikTok superstar. Her TikToks with her, the entire team, especially her two roommates, Emma Meesman and Errol Atkins are amazing. They are his, like, they're so good. And the fact that it's only been a few days, like, honestly, like, let's just like quarantine the three of them, make them safe and like have them entertain us with TikToks all summer. And I, I would be happy. So, you know, that's been, that's been helping me through. 
thank you all so much for listening to Burn It All Down. Um, you can find us on uh, anywhere that you, you know you get podcasts. Uh, we're asked a lot how people can help us. You know, maybe you've already signed up for the Patreon. Maybe you can't afford to support anything else right now because we're in the middle of a pandemic and we totally understand that. What can really help us though is telling maybe, let's say three people in your life this week about the Burn It All Down podcast. Maybe some people who you who don't really seem like the type that would like us. I think what we found is that once people give us a chance, they're hooked. So try to think outside the box of the people you normally recommend Burn It All Down to. And also go to iTunes and give us a five-star review and tell people why this podcast means something to you. Our passionate fans are the most amazing. They're why we do this every week. And we cannot thank you enough. And the hope is that we can keep growing so that we can keep making this podcast. Thank you all for, I'm Lindsay. And uh, on behalf of all my co-hosts, I'll use Brenda's line, burn on, not out. Burn on.